What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbond.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we have finally reached the letters X, Y, and Z. So our discovery mission comes to an end. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me for the final-ish time as we explore the characters and creators of the Bond world that fall under the 24th, 25th, and 26th letter, uh, letters of the alphabet, it's the extremely youthful and zesty Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. I mean, extremely begins with E, but fine. I see what you're trying to do. <laughs> Uh, that the excellent letter is uh, causes a lot of problems this week. So, um, so this is, I mean, this is it. This is it. We finally reached the letter Z. Can you believe it? I mean, I did. I did wonder if we'd ever get here. Well, I mean, it was. I think it was the first year. I think we sort of we, we were treating it as a marathon rather than a sprint. Yeah. And um, I think those sort of that first year we got to about the letter D or C or uh, letter D or E or something. Um, so we really rattled through the alphabet in the second second year we were on air, but um, uh, it's an amazing feeling actually. It's, I think it's quite an achievement. I'll be look, happy to look back on it all once it's all done. Um, it it really does seem like ages ago since that first episode, doesn't it? It really does. I listened to some of it as well actually, as as, as part of something which I'll talk about in a second, um, and it sounds very different. Um, I feel, feel like we've found our groove now, but anyway. There's enough about that waffle. We're not here to talk about ourselves. Uh, on this episode, we've got a number of important figures from the early years of Bond and some characters from the Brosnan era, a composer, a very important voiceover artist, and of course, Max Zorin. Someone that we mention in the intro every single week. So finally <laughs> get to talk about Max Zorin. But first, we're going to take a look at the letter X. There's now, Brendan. Well, there's nothing in there, is there? Is that on the master doc? There was nothing. Yeah. Right. 
So for the first time, we've got no entries under this letter, but I put a call out for entries um, just in case we missed any Here we uh, go. to our followers on Twitter. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who suggested Agent Triple X, who you obviously forgot that we covered on our very first episode wow. <laughs> back in January 2021 under, under Anya Amasova. So uh, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> and also thanks to everyone who suggested Xenia Onatop, who we have covered twice on our O episode and our GoldenEye episode. So, um, But, I mean, Ratman's on Twitter. He, he asked us to cover her again just because he loves her so much. Uh, and so do we. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Some other suggestions from people on, on Twitter... Uh, Corey, um, he suggested, what about uh, covering the exes of Bond movies? And I mean, people who left the series as some of the biggest contributors uh, to the movies who left on, either on good terms or bad. Uh, but I feel like we've covered all that at length. Uh, right? Also, it begins with E. I'm not having it. I mean, it does. It does. <laughs> uh, Siamese Vodka, friend of the show, he suggested that we cover Xbox and talk about the Bond video games. Yeah, but the the peak... Bond games weren't on Xbox, so... It's not well, there it. is that, and also it's a podcast about the films, so... Um, we've mentioned really the, be doing the games along the way. I mean, but We've done a few of them, haven't there's we? There's only one, isn't there? Well, Goldeneye, yeah. Um, Eddie Coulter suggested we cover the Triple X movies. Nope. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> um, but there is a link, isn't there? Because yeah. um, Lee Tamahori directed Triple X State of the Union, didn't he? Indeed. Two years after. yeah. Die another day, so onwards and upwards for him. Another friend of the show, Phil Nobile Jr., suggested we cover X-rays. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Brendan. Yeah. Can you name some of the uses of X-rays in the Bond films? Uh, the thing is, I'm going to get the... It's a Brosnan film. It's either Tomorrow yeah. Never Dies or The World Isn't Enough, where he, he's got yeah. some specs, hasn't he? And he looks through the yeah. clothes of women. Yeah. It's The World Is Not Enough. Right, okay. Yeah, it's, it's when he's in uh, Zakovsky's casino and he That's uses the, uh, the, the, the X-ray specs. So there's that. There's also some X-ray specs in Casino Royale 67, <laughs> which I forgot. Yeah, they're the spirally sort, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, some other uses of X-rays in Bond. Uh, Asato, X-rays Bond in You Only Live Twice, an episode we've just done. Ah, yes, of course. And says his lungs about are smoking. Yeah. yeah, but in fact, he's got the gun, hasn't he? Yeah. But uh, so it's uh, yeah, and then Brosnan actually uses an X-ray document scanner in Goldeneye, which I'd totally forgotten about. Yeah, and Lazenby uses a Xerox machine in Gumbold's office in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Now so could have done Xerox. Good. I mean, that's niche. Yeah. That is niche. Um, that one was suggested by uh, our friends at MI6. So uh, thanks for that one. Um, there's also the X-ray opening sequence of T- Tomorrow Never Dies, but I think that's enough of X-rays, right? Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. what are we going to say about X-rays? Nothing. But really. I know, exactly. I mean, we're listing them off. This is basically the podcast anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there's also the X-ray code cracker in Moonraker before anyone else uh, emails in the show. Um, Mark Edlitz, he suge- suggested we talk about X-section. Have you heard about X-section? No. So this is... Um, now, this is this comes from uh, the James Bond lexicon. It says X section is devoted to cross examination of foreign spies captured abroad and of suspected double agents within the Secret Service. Um, and apparently, in the books, this is from the Money Penny Diaries. The X section was um, where Rosa Klebb was held for a month after her death, uh, until her death after From Russia with Love. So, right but again. Not the films, so yeah. sadly, not got not got that one. 
Uh, Mark also suggests that a dental x-ray, which he thinks James Bond will need after his perfunctory job of brushing his teeth in No Time to Die. So I think that's an English <laughs> an English teeth uh, dig there. Um, oh, dear. Uh, Lobel Studio also suggested Station X, and that's something to do with Bletchley Park. Um, what else have we got? Um, oh, well, yeah, Ben Leslie suggested X-rated for when Bond uses the camera to zoom in on the cleavage in Octopussy. I mean, I mean we're not talking about Octopussy again. I can't. I just can't. <laughs> Um, probably my favourite, or one of my favourites, William Nagy suggested Xmas come only comes once a year. No, because I tell you why, I hate that abbreviation of Christmas. Yeah, me too. Um, and a, a Luke half monk half hitman said he sent us this. I don't, I don't quite know how to read this, but I'm going to read it out for you. He says for the forthcoming James Bond A to Z children's book, Xanthip Zeniad X'd off her assassin's X list with zany safe sex. Well, xenophobic triple X X-rayed a Xerox scan from Max in Zerich Luxor. Neither were very xenial. Um, He'd obviously been... Uh, I, I think my, my brain's just fallen out my ears. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my favourite, my favourite of all, is Linus O'Neill, who suggested that we cover the X-rated James Bond parodies from the 1980s that starred Anne Boleyn. Um, and uh, I had to look these up, did a safe search... <laughs> But in 1986, there was a film called Jane Bond meets Octopussy. In 1987, there was one called Jane Bond meets Goldenrod. Um, so, yeah, uh, you research those at hang your on, panel. Hang on. Goldenrod? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't go- get the the pun. Yeah, I mean, gold member Go- would have been. Golden gun? Gold. Gold. F- goldenrod. Yeah, I don't I know. I mean, they could have just done Goldfinger. Done. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. But there you have it. That's the that's the letter X. But I I, I have to say, um, uh, I think your suggestion when we messaged about this was the best, which is the James Bond theme as played on the xylophone. So let's have a little listen of that. Y is for young, Freddie Young. Ah, it's like it's like getting into a nice old pair of slippers. This it's familiar. <laughs> so Freddie Young was a cinematographer, born October nineteen o two. Wow, I think he might have, that might be the earliest date we've had someone. We've talked about someone. That's very early. Uh, it's got to be one it, of the earliest to do with the films, anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So he was a cinematographer and, and a really really renowned cinematographer who pioneered it, to be honest. So he won three Oscars for his cinematography and he worked closely with... Was it train coming out of a station? (laughs) No, it wasn't. (laughs) Although he probably did shoot that. And he worked with David Lean and uh, he worked with him on Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. So he won Oscars for for both of those. Have you seen either of those? Yes, yes. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, I have seen. I mean, it's a long, old slog, but oh my God, it's well worth it. Yeah. Well worth it. I, I just sort of match of the day it, but I wanted to see what he won the Oscars for. And the shots are absolutely stunning. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, n- no doubt it got its plaudits. And and with that relationship with David Lean, their relationship was, uh, they had success, but it wasn't without its problems. He said, I got on very well with David 
but he was inclined to take the credit for everything. He'd pat me on the back, give me a hug, but he'd seldom divulge my contributions to the world. So, there you go. But let's let's roll back a bit. Um, Fred Frederick Archibald Young. When he was younger, he was into football and boxing, and he was quite quite adept at, at both of those. But he really loved the silent films, you know, while he was growing up. So, um, and when he was fifteen, he got a job as a tea boy at Gaumont Studios in Shepherd's Bush. And not not long after, he was promoted to lab assistant. Um, so obviously, at this point, it, this is nineteen seventeen. So as you can imagine, filmmaking was very primitive. Um, and he's very much in its infancy. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And he said the studios were in a glass house to get the light. If a cloud came over the sun, the set would go very dark. It was very crude. We had a few arc lights, but it was what I'd call illumination, not lighting. And uh, so in 1918, he developed and hand printed 6,000 feet of Man on the Moon, which was the first British sci-fi film. Mm. He's worked in the industry 10 years. We get to 1927 and what 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 is introduced the sound. sound sound yes he'd got his recognition from being a fantastic lighting cameraman um and that's where he did he did this first film the flag lieutenant 1926 so this this garnered a lot of appreciation as well 1929 herbert wilcox who's a producer he took him to mgm and got him under a contract as we know at this period this is everyone was under studio contract they were for a number of pictures um, but his jobs included everything. So he would edit and he was also drive the studio car. He was <laughs> basically a dog's body. Obviously, as we get to the, the people of this age, what happens? We get to the 40s, World War II happens. And so he actually served as a captain and chief cameraman of the British Army's kinematograph unit. And he made army training films. So yeah, still carrying on his passion all throughout World War II. Um, after the war, he went freelance. So he left MGM and decided that he wanted to go it alone. And by this point, colour was arriving. And so money was being pumped into the studios and there were advances that were... It was happening quite quickly, you know. Um, so his credits read... Well, he did Caesar and Cleopatra in 1949. Um, which at the time, written by Bernard Shaw, was the most expensive British film. Um, wow. And then moving forward, did The Winslow Boy, Ivanhoe, which was nominated for an Oscar, Knights of the Round Table. There was a Van Gogh bio- biopic, Lust for Life, with Kirk Douglas. So he was he made that look beautiful, as you need you would imagine you need to do with a, a film about a, a painter. Sure. But we get to 1967. So by this point... He's been working in the industry for 50 years. So I know we only just covered that episode, but that's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? We're, we're on the fifth Bond film. So Bond is in its infancy and we're treating that as early days. He's been working in the industry for 50 years. It's amazing. Um, and so to honour him, Cubby and Harry, they threw Freddie a party towards the end of the production and they invited 200 guests. And that was all in order to celebrate that 50th anniversary so he had worked with some of the absolute biggest names in Hollywood at the time. And he saw the treatment that the Bond producer had, producers had given him. And he said, at the end of You Only Live Twice, 
Kirby asked me to go to Hollywood to supervise the colour grading of 600 prints required for crash release. Kirby booked us into a sumptuous suite at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and arranged for me to be entertained every night and taken to baseball games, Disneyland and so on. For me, it was the product of 50 years hard slog to receive this VIP treatment. So that's quite nice. It's quite nice of Cubby to recognise yeah. him very much in his in his nature to recognise that. Yeah. Um, Post Bond, he worked with Guy Hamilton, um, and it was produced by Harry Saltzman. Battle of Britain, nineteen sixty nine, yeah. which we've spoken about before. Um, yeah. Yeah. He continued to work throughout the seventies. He got another Oscar nomination, Nicholas and Alexandra, in nineteen seventy, um, and he won an Emmy for. TV version of Macbeth. Um, and so his last film was Sword of the Valiant in 1984. Any ideas who it starred? Sword of the Valiant. No. Sean Connery. There we nice go. Nice little, nice tight in a bow there. So obviously he set the precedent. He was a trailblazer and it was something that hampered him because his skill as a DOP, it deprived him of that chance to step up and direct, really. As we saw from um, Peter Hunt, you know, it's, it's similar in that vein, isn't it? If you if you make yourself so good at something, where you can't be replaced. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you uh, nowadays you sort of see, you know, people are cinematographers or mm. they're directors, or and it's only sort of sometimes you see writers go on to be directors, don't you? Yeah. But it seemed then, very much back then, you would work your way up mm. to being director. You'd go yeah. through all these different sort of jobs. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Because that, that was, you know, it was in its infancy, the whole industry, wasn't it? So they were. It was start at the bottom, work your way through all the departments. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, he did get to, he made a television film. He directed called Arthur's Hallowed Ground. Um, he was 82 when he made it. Wow. But um, he did have mixed feelings about directors themselves. He says, those limelight hogs think they're God. <laughs> Vincente Minelli interfered with everything. George Cooker talked for hours to the actors. But nice chaps, gentlemen. So uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, he's appointed OBE in 1970. Um, and he died in 1998 in December. But um, wow. a- a- an amazing career, really. And... Uh, I feel bad for not having seen Lawrence of Arabia, and I feel I feel it's something I should I should do. Yeah, I, I seem to recall watching it on a bank holiday, and uh, it take the whole bank it holiday. Really, it really does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just I mean it just goes on and on and on. But it is it, it's a wonderful experience if you can if you can make your way through it. Really, it really is. Doctor Zhivago, though, I haven't even got a clue what that's about. Me either. One of those films that. <laughs> no. I th- is it about the Russian Revolution? I think Maybe. perhaps that's that's that. Your is it? Is it a romance? I don't know. Um, we should be doing Z for Zhivago, shouldn't we? But uh... Uh-huh. well, we could do an A to Z on Freddie Young himself. He, he made over yep. one hundred and thirty films. Why is for Young Terence Young? Now he was the director of Doctor No, From Russia with Love, and Thunderball. So born in 20th of June, 1915, he was an Irish filmmaker, Irish by parentage, really only, um, who directed, uh, yeah, like I said, three of the Bond films. He was actually born in Shanghai, uh, where his father was a police commissioner, um, and they moved to England when he was still quite young. Obviously quite a moneyed family, though. Mm. Um, I think, you know, if he was working sort of colonial sort of uh, father, 
because um, he ended up he was educated at Harrow and then he read Oriental History at St. Catherine's College at Cambridge. So, um, yeah, uh, his film career began in the 1930s as a screenwriter, earning um, credits on lots of different films starting in 1939, often working with a Northern Irish director called Brian Desmond Hurst. Then World War Two came. He was commissioned in the Irish Guards and was a tank commander during World War Two. Um, uh, he was in 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 saw, saw action in the Netherlands, uh, and I also read reports that he worked in British intelligence during the Second World War. He was attached to the field security section of the Guards Armoured Division, so sort of within the same circles as Ian Fleming, but. Mm. Um, so he, after that, he continued to sort of write um, military films throughout the war um, and at one point was given leave to work on a screenplay called On Approval. Um, so after after that, after um, World War Two, he then started directing. Um, and in 1948, he got three director credits, Corridor of Mirrors, One Night With You and Woman Hater. And then in 1953... Terence Young was hired by Cubby Broccoli to direct The Red Beret in, uh, and that was the first film Cubby produced in the UK under his Warwick Films banner written by Richard Maybaum and then he went on to direct for Warwick Safari, Zarak and then a film called No Time to Die in 1958. As we know from our Cubby Broccoli episodes Warwick didn't last um, uh, so that company was dissolved and then Cubby teamed up with Harry Saltzman to make James Bond. Um, and then on Doctor No, uh, as they were gearing up to make that, Guy Hamilton and Terence Young were the front runners to direct. Um, after a, a number of directors turned it down, I seem to recall, um, and Guy Hamilton himself turned it down in the end. But Terence Young was the man to do it, and a lot of people sort of thought that he was well suited to the character actually. And David Picker of, of UA, he said it was easy to say Terence was the living embodiment of James Bond. His style of dress, his sense, his style of life, he could have played James Bond himself. And he had met Ian Fleming as well, um, Terence Young, uh, in Jamaica. He said, I met him through his wife, Anne Rothermere. I also met him through Noel Coward. I'd been staying at Noel's house in Jamaica and Ian was there. We met just after I'd signed to do the picture at some big press show put on by United Artists. He said, so they've decided on you to fuck up my work. And I said, well... Let me put it this way, Ian. I don't think anything you've written is immortal as yet, whereas the last picture I won made won the Grand Prix at Venice. Now, let's start level. Ooh. So, didn't take, uh, didn't take any... Uh, yeah, wouldn't be taken for a form. So then he worked with Joanna Harwood on the script uh, to bring Doctor No into shape, but see uh, the Doctor No episode for more details on that. They, they sort of clashed on uh, their, their working styles. But Terence Young is credited with really moulding Sean Connery into his own image. Lois Maxwell said that Terence took Sean under his wing. He took him to dinner, showed him how to walk, how to talk, even how to eat. And I think, isn't it Terence Young that told him to sleep in the suit as well? Yeah, yeah. So that's Dr. No. Uh, sadly, um, there's been some quite unsavoury reports from the set of Dr. No about uh, some of Terence Young's behaviour, which sort of casts uh, a bit of a cloud over his legacy somewhat. Um, but... From there, we have uh, obviously Doctor No was a huge success, and then From Russia with Love was fast tracked into production, and they basically just kept the same crew and moved on to the next movie, including Terence Young as the director. But when Goldfinger came round, uh, uh, Young was involved in script development, but passed on directing, and Guy Hamilton stepped in to direct that one instead. Talking about it, Terence Young said, The idea of going on and making a James Bond film every year for the next 10 years is just not my bag. I want to do something else. So Guy Hamilton came in 
had a huge success with Goldfinger. Um, and so Guy Hamilton then felt he'd done everything he could with Bond. So he passed on making Thunderball. Terence Young was then back in the frame and he admitted to taking the job. Thinking anything you can do, I can do better. He said it was really childish of me. So he took that one out of spite, really. <laughs> um, and that ended up being the most successful Bond picture of them all. And then, as we know, for You Don't Live Twice, they basically brought in a whole new creative team. So Terence Young was out. Lewis Gilbert was in. So after that, he went on to make uh, a film called The Amorous Adventures of Mole Flanders, released in 65. That was the one that he made after Thunderball. And that was a big hit. And it starred Kim Novak and Angela Lansbury. And then after Bond, he sort of didn't really find his feet again. He sort of, he worked a lot in Europe. One of the films he directed then was an anti-drug film. Do you remember this one? We talked about it. The Poppy is Also a Flower. Mm. Yeah. Uh, based on a story by Ian Fleming. And it has a number of Bond people connected with that one. Um, other credits in that period for Terence Young include Triple Cross, Mailing and The Rover. And he had a hit in 67 with the Audrey Hepburn film Wait Until Dark. Then in the 70s, he made three films with Charles Bronson. Um, and when he went to Hollywood for his first picture in 1974, The Klansman, it was a huge flop. It was just absolutely savaged by the critics, starred Richard Burton and Lee Marvin. And they pulled the plug on his next next picture, a film called The Jackpot, which also starred Richard Burton during production after the response to The Klansman. So must have been an absolute stinker. <laughs> Then after that, he sort of goes off the radar a bit. There are rumours, and it's kind of unsubstantiated, but he does have the credit attached to his name on IMDb, that he went to Iraq to direct a telenovela about the life of Saddam Hussein, which was a propaganda film for Saddam Hussein. Wow. Uh, it's not very clear how true this is, though. Um, so, yeah, take that with a pinch of salt. And then in the early 1980s, he directed a film called Inchon, which is one of the most notorious flops of all time. This is a Korean war film. Um, it was financed by the Unifi Unification Church founder Sun Myung Moon and starred Sir Lawrence Olivier as General Douglas MacArthur. It lost $44 million in 1980 and is considered the biggest flop of the decade and often is named one of the worst movies ever made and won four Razzies at the third Golden Raspberry Awards, including Worst Director for Terence Young. So quite an ignominious end for him. He sort of floated around a little bit, a few more credits to his name, but no, nothing of note. And then he died in 1994 in, uh, at a hospital in Cannes after having a heart attack. And he was working on a documentary. He was 79 at the time. And that's Terence Young. Z or Z, if you're across the, across the Atlantic, is for Zhao, Tang Lin Zhao. Uh, but better known as Zhao, is a North Korean intelligence operative. Um, but he's he's the the right hand man of Gustav Graves. He's he, a henchman. In, Just call him what he really is. <laughs> okay, he's a henchman. He's a, henchman. <laughs> oh, he's a bit more than Mister Mister Kill, isn't he? He's. <laughs> I mean, that's a low bar. <laughs> he's a low bar, uh, and he's in uh, Die Another Day, and he's got that distinguished look of diamonds in his face um but also he's got the um he's halfway through his regeneration treatment as well yeah so he looks sort of albino doesn't he he's got yeah. like no hair no eyebrows yeah and of course the diamonds blasted into his face from uh from bond um can't get them out you cannot get them out no 
It looks like you can, though, doesn't it? Look, tweezers, pair of tweezers. I think you could do. Yeah. So, it, basically, they use this as a, a reveal to show that Gustav Graves has gone through that treatment that he was trying to go through. But in terms of with Bond, I mean, their car chase, it's a, it's, it's a good car chase on ice, isn't it? Zao driving one of the... the uh, absolutely one of the best. The yeah. Jag, the green Jaguar, and with everything melting. Um, and then his death, it's a good death as well. The chandelier, the ice chandelier coming down and absolutely it, pummeling him. Yeah, because he's he's pretty much dead anyway in the water, isn't yeah. he? And then that comes down to just completely like hammer home the point that, yeah, yeah. he's definitely dead He's definitely dead, dead. He's not coming <laughs> back. But what do you think of Zhao? I like him. I mean, like I said, the, 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 his look is nonsensical. Yeah, yeah. I think but that he's... takes away from it, to be honest. It's a shame. Because yeah, he's not bad. Perhaps. Yeah, um, and who's who's the actor? So it's Rick Yoon, and um, yeah. Rick Yoon is uh, an American American actor born in Washington. Um, but in terms of role, he said it's a brilliant role, and I love playing a Bond villain. The only problem is I'm topless in a lot of the scenes in Spain, and it's been raining. I've had to have a lot of hot water bottles on standby. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they shot it in winter, didn't they? Yeah, because Halle Berry said the same thing, yeah. didn't she? She had to film that scene coming out of the scene. It was freezing. Yeah. Um, but he he um, he said about his youth as well. He said that his dad loved Bond movies and that he passed that on to him. He said when, when he was a kid, he had a James Bond club at his school. He said, <sighs> we used to do little stunts, like break into the school after hours and steal valuable information, a teacher's <laughs> book or something. That's quite nice. He got He got his dream. Um, but he was born as Richard Yoon, and his heritage uh, stems from Mongolia, Korea, and China. Um, he's also a taekwondo expert, and he was part of the uh, tryouts for the US team when he was only 19. Uh, and then after college, he actually went on to be a stock trader in Wall Street. So it wasn't until later on he was discovered. He was discovered by a talent agent one morning in an elevator while he was at work. Um, and then became the first American Asian model for Versace. Yeah, then he got a big Hollywood break as Johnny Tran in The Fast and the Furious. Is that the first one? It, yeah, in 2001. Sorry, yeah, there's there's Fast... It's I'm, Fast and Furious okay, is the fine, first fine, one, it's it? Fast and Furious is the one that he was in. Not The Fast and the Furious, that was, like what, number four? Not, I'm going to say four, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's confusing. Okay, 2001. Which is yeah, the first, the first one. one yeah. yeah. After Dying of the Day, we move forward to 2008, where he wrote and produced a film called The Fifth Commandment, which is a martial arts film set in Hong Kong. Um, and you might have seen him pop up uh, in little cameos in US shows like Alias, Boston Legal and CSI. Um, but he also starred with Russell Crowe and Lucy Liu in The Man with the Iron Fists uh, in 2012. That was the Wu-Tang movie, wasn't it? Yep. And he played Kang Yeon-sak uh, in Olympus Has Fallen, which is the uh, Gerald Butler vehicle for Gerald Butler running around in a vest, which is yep. most Gerald Butler films. That one's quite good, I think. I enjoy the Has Fallen films. He was in the drama series Marco Polo, um, two seasons of that. And he will later appear in the upcoming film called Tetris. 
Is it playing a character called Larry? I don't know what this film's about, but it sounds interesting. (laughs) It's about the man who invents Tetris, I think. It's got, um, yeah, it's not about blocks falling. No, I I thought it might be. Yeah, I wanted to be like Pixels, you know, the film Pixels. Got Kevin Hart and Josh Gad in it. (laughs) Big bricks coming down, crushing everyone. (laughs) So, yeah, I've got that to look forward to, but... um, quite nice when someone who has uh, watched Bond from a young age gets to be in a Bond film Z or Z is for Zimmer Hans Zimmer, who's got the keys to my bimmer? <laughs> uh, now, so Hans Zimmer, born in uh, 12th September 1957, is a German musician and, and composer who, of course, was behind the score for No Time to Die. And I say behind rather than was the composer of because <laughs> it's a bit complicated. But um, uh, he was born in Frankfurt and uh, Zimmer says that his musical skills are largely self-taught. He said, my formal training was two weeks of piano lessons. I was thrown out of eight schools, but I joined a band. I'm self-taught. But I've always heard music in my head and I'm a child of the 20th century. Computers came, came in very handy. Now, Zimmer's career is absolutely bonkers. So I'll try and do my best to give you a potted history um, and a little bit of Bond. Um, but yeah, so he moved to England as a teenager. He was in a band called Krakatoa in the 70s. And then after that, he worked in a number of different bands, including The Buggles. Uh, and he's in the video for The Video Killed the Radio Star. Really? Their biggest, their biggest hit, yeah. Wow. Uh, he worked with an Italian group called Chrisma. Um, some other groups, I've, I've never heard of many of these, but Heldon, Meccano, Shriekback, and then The Damned. I've heard of them. Um, and then in London, he started to write jingles for advertising. And he uh, partnered with a guy in the 1980s called Stanley Myers, who's a film composer. He wrote scores for loads of different films. And they set up and co-founded their own London-based Lily Yard recording studio. And some of Zimmer's earliest credits at this time include the Channel 4 film My Beautiful Laundrette, The Fruit Machine, and a miniseries called Firstborn. Some of the films on which Zimmer and Myers worked on include uh, Moonlighting in 1982, um, uh, Best Revenge in 1984, and Insignificance in 1985. And then Zimmer got to write his first solo score for a film called Terminal Exposure, and he also wrote some songs for that one as well. Uh, That's in 1987. And then, uh, also in 1987, he was the score producer for the 1987 film The Last Emperor, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Score. So really hitting the ground running there. Also in 1987, this is a fun fact, he composed the theme song for the TV show Going for Gold. His big breakthrough was just around the corner as he composed um, the score in 1988 for Rain Man. And that obviously was a massive hit. It was nominated for Academy Awards and he actually won uh, Best Picture that year. Won four Academy Awards, in fact. 
And then the year after that, he did the score for Driving Miss Daisy, which also won the Best Picture. So you're looking at an unbelievable run of success here for Hans Zimmer. From there, right, we could basically talk about, we should mention the films he hasn't worked on rather than the ones he has, because it's unbelievable. Are you ready? Yeah. So Twister, Bird on a Wire, Days of Thunder, Thelma and Louise. That's his first with Ridley Scott, someone he works with a lot. Backdraft, K2, The Power of One, which was one of Daniel Craig's early roles. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, League of Their Own, Toys, True Romance, Cool Runnings, and then The Lion King. And The Lion King just, again, takes him to another level entirely. This is a huge hit for Zimmer. Um, he won many awards for this. He got an Academy Award for Best Original Score, Golden Globe, two Grammys. Um, and obviously then um, it was adapted to, to, into a Broadway musical and won a Tony Award as well then. Uh, and then in 2000, uh, he starts performing live. And this becomes a huge part of his sort of career, this touring, which he does. He still does now. And he is amazing live. Um, and we saw, oh, no, you weren't with me, but we saw him play guitar at um, uh, on No Time to Die at the Albert Hall for the, the 60 Years of Bond, Sound of Bond celebration. That was amazing. Um, but yeah, here's some of his other movies from 2000 onwards. You ready? Yeah. Crimson Tide, Broken Arrow, The Rock, As Good As It Gets, The Thin Red Line, Prince of Egypt, Gladiator, Mission Impossible 2, Hannibal, Pearl Harbor, Black Hawk Down, Last Samurai, Thunderbirds, Batman Begins, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Simpsons movie. He did the score for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, The Dark Knight, Sherlock Holmes Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Amazing Spider-Man 2, 12 Years a Slave, Interstellar, Batman vs. Superman, Dunkirk, Blade Runner 2049, Widows, X-Men Dark Phoenix. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. What I like about his career, though, as well, is as well as doing all these prestige pic- pictures, he often like does animated films. Mm. So he did like Rango. He did the SpongeBob movie. So he's not afraid to like try different things. Uh, obviously, he also did the music for Frozen Planet as well, which was just a sort of a uh, cultural moment, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and then in 2020 to 2021, he was a su- incredibly busy time for him. He was sp- responsible for the scores for Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy, Wonder Woman 1984, June, Top Gun Maverick, and of course, No Time to Die. I mean, that's just a prolific workload, isn't it? Um, and so in January 2020, it was announced that he'd been take he would take over composing on No Time to Die after the previous composer Dan Romer left the project. In an interview, he said, "I'd known Barbara Broccoli for a long time, and we're friends. I never thought we would work together on something like that. So it was surprising just to get the call. And I asked her if it was okay that Steve Mazzaro, who is one of the most fabulous composers I know, could do it with me because there was very little time. And of course, she said yes. And Steve should really be the top name of the Bond film. I hope we've done it justice. So Zimmer, like someone like um, who's the one, Damien Hurst, right? He's like a brand in himself. So he works on all these different things. And yes, he is involved in them, but doesn't necessarily do all the nitty gritty stuff. So he often has other composers working for him. He might come up with a cue and then he hands it over and then someone else does all the work. And Steve Mazzara, I think, is the one that deserves all the credit on No Time to Die. And then obviously on No Time to Die, he produced a song with Billie Eilish and Phineas. And you can hear more about that on our No Time to Die episode. Um, we covered it a lot there, but apparently I, this is interesting. I did an interview. Uh, I read an interview with Billie Eilish, um, and she said, 
that there'd actually been a number of uh, options for th- songs for No Time to Die that had come in from lots of different artists. And Hans Zimmer said, I'm not going to say who the other acts were. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But I'm going to get myself... But I am going to get myself into loads of trouble and I don't care. I couldn't get past the intro of the other tracks. Wow. So, yeah. Interesting to hear some of those mm. when they come out. But when he heard Billie Eilish's version, he sort of... He just knew that's it. It's the perfect movie song. He said, it's in the quietness somehow. You have a huge landscape in front of you. So that's it. That brings us right up to date. Uh, And as of 2022, Zimmer had received 12 Academy Award nominations for his work. Two wins. uh, The first being in uh, 94 for The Lion King. And then the most recently one coming in 2022 for June. uh, Which, (laughs) have you you seen June? Yeah. What a score. Yeah. Uh, Unbelievable. I think it overshadows the film, to be honest. I, I think it's better than the film, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I thought the film was a bit... I, I was left a bit cold by the film, but that's the score. There's that bit where the, the, the guy turns up with that bagpipes. And it's just like, here we go, bagpipes yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I think he recorded like three albums worth of music for it or it's something just, crazy. It's just amazing, is it? Yeah. It's it's Vangelis level of, you know, just yeah. recording. Yeah, I think it's an incredible career and, you know, he's he's clearly got more in the tank. You know, he's going to keep going. Yeah. There's no sign of stopping. Um, Unbelievably prolific. And and uh, I just, you know, no matter what you think of the Pirates of the Caribbean film, the score, especially of that first yeah. one, um, was it He's a Pirate? Is that what it's called? Oh, you know, I don't the, know. The main, I mean, da, 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 da. It's an amazing yeah. piece of music. It's giving me goosebumps just thinking about yeah. it. And when he plays it live, I've watched it. I've watched videos of him doing live stuff and it just absolutely like blows the crowd away. Yeah, so. I've, I've, seen a, I've seen the London Philharmonic do a John Williams versus Hans Zimmer. And uh, as you can imagine, that's amazing because that's two of the greatest living composers, if not the two. Z is for Zakowski, Valentin Dmitrovich Zakowski. So hey. Zakowski appears in Goldeneye and The World Is Not Enough. And he is an, he's ex-KGB and I wouldn't class him as a, as, as a villain. He's a strange category, this one, isn't he? Yeah, he's sort of in between, isn't yeah. he? Villain slash ally. I mean, very much an ally by the end of The World Is Not Enough. Well, he's integral to both, really, if you think about it. So in, in the first one... So there's a bit of backstory between Bond and uh, Zukovsky. Bond tracks him down and so we're told, we learn that before the events of Goldeneye, Bond shot Zukovsky in the knee and that's why he needs his walking stick, stole his car and his girlfriend. And so obviously by the time he tracks him down in his nightclub looking for some intelligence on the the whereabouts of uh, Alec Trevelyan, he basically he, he delivers that fantastic line just from the gun. Um, so obviously, Bond cocks his gun and. Walther PPK. 
7.65 millimeter. Only three men I know use such a gun. I believe I've killed two of them. Lucky me. I think not. Uh, which is an excellent line. And Zukovsky, he, you know, although he's he's wary of helping Bond, Bond reminds him that he didn't actually kill him, and you know, and he could have, he could have killed yeah, him, yeah, exactly. Um, so he's provided with the information and um, sets up an introduction, and so essentially getting to the to Bond winning the day, isn't it? Really, without that, without that, what's he going to do? Yeah, he has no connection to the Janus people, has he? Exactly. Um, So, Robbie Coltrane, who plays Zikovsky, was so pleased with how the character had turned out that he had suggested that at some point Zikovsky should return. And four years later, that request was granted. And so in The World Is Not Enough, we see Zikovsky again. And this time, he is running his own casino, and a caviar factory. Yes. Um, so it appears that he's he's gone legit. Um, but obviously, clearly not. But um, Zukovsky learns that um, Elektra and Reynard have killed his nephew. And so obviously he's absolutely furious and he goes off to track Elektra down. And... Um, to demand Nikolai's hat hat back, so he wants his nephew's hat back, and um, <laughs> Electra uses that hat, the very same hat, to hide a gun and shoot Zukovsky. And what's Zukovsky's last act? During Brosnan's pain face, <laughs> he he uses his cane. So his cane that he's got is a, it's got a a gun hidden inside it basically and he shoots the wrist restraints that are holding Bond captive. Is it the wrist restraint or a foot restraint? I it's what it's... Yeah, anyway, he yeah. shoots him free, doesn't he? Yeah. So yeah, with without Bond, if Bond hadn't have uh, just shot his knee and, and given that walking stick. Yeah. That, he'd be a goner. Circle. So yeah. a really important character for, you know, it's I'm so glad he came back. You know, he's yeah. he's one of the. There's not much to enjoy in the world, isn't enough. But Zukovsky <laughs> is, uh, is, is wow. Is, Final episode. The gloves are off. They really are. Well, <laughs> they can they can email complaints in all they want, but no one's monitoring. <laughs> um, so who played Zukovsky? Well, Robbie Coltrane played Zukovsky, and he was born as Anthony Robert Macmillan um, in Scotland, in South Lanarkshire. Um, and he studied at Glasgow School of Art. So it's a stage name. Sorry to interrupt. It is a stage name. Yeah. Interesting. Didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. In his early 20s, he uh, he really got into acting. And he, in particular, loved sketch comedy and improv. Mm. Um, so he took his stage name from his jazz hero, John Coltrane. I was going to... Ah, I thought it might be a link to that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so in his early early 20s he got a bit of a reputation of being uh, a stand up uh, and a comedy performer at the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh but then his career really took off in in the 80s um so he was part of the cast for uh, Metal Mickey Keep It in the Family a chat show called Sin on Sunday he was part of 
what they called comic strip presents yes the comic strip presents yeah, yeah which is like a who's who of british comedians from from that era yeah um, yeah that the uh the, the next new wave what were they called alternative comedy at that point wasn't it it was like the next next generation um, yeah so he uh then won uh, then he got um some parts some bit parts in some films um he was in flash gordon as well starred timothy dalton yeah i'm just trying to remember who he is in, in flash gordon i'm gonna look it up now go on um but it's it's with with his friends from those uh the cambridge footlights Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, and Ben Elton. That uh, he starred in a sketch show called Alfresco, which I've not heard of, but you know that. I mean, the talent there: Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, and Ben Elton. The, the output that those four have created, ah, uh, just incredible. So, nineteen ninety-three, it gave him an opportunity to flex those ask, uh, acting muscles, and uh, he won awards for Cracker. Yeah. Classic. Um, I'm going to mention the biggest role. Second only... I mean, he, he's, he's got a special place in the hearts of Bond fans and Harry Potter fans, hasn't he? Um, he really has, yeah. Because he obviously plays Hagrid um, in all the Harry Potter films. J.K. Rowling had Coltrane at the top of her list to play Hagrid. And she was asked in an interview before they started making the films, who would you like to play Hagrid? And she said, Robbie Coltrane for Hagrid without a beat um so i think it's him and uh alan rickman for snape were the two weren't they they were the absolute must-haves um because didn't the americans want to have robin williams as hagrid did they yeah that was one of the (laughs) early uh yeah that that was one of the ones they linked you uh, cannot imagine anyone else playing that character can you no you really can't no um unfortunately he suffered from osteoarthritis which meant he was in constant pain all day so in 2016, he got he got a diagnosis for that. And from 2019, I didn't know this, he used a wheelchair from 2019. Yeah, very sad, yeah. yeah. Um, and then he died uh, in Scotland on the 14th of October, 2022, and he was 72. Um, obviously, the illness had, uh, had defeated him, sadly. Yeah. But, I mean, a great career. And yeah, and only a very small part of the Bond world, but a very memorable one. Well, that's the talent he had, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I looked at the Flash Gordon. Uh, he basically plays... Have you seen Flash Gordon? Uh, no, I haven't, no. I think right at the very start, there's a, they're at an airport and um, there's a plane taking off and he's the guy refueling the plane. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Um, but Robbie Coltrane, actually, I want to say, like when he was in GoldenEye... He was such a familiar f- face on British TV at the mm. time. Yeah. Just from all the comedy stuff he was doing. Yeah. So actually to see him doing serious stuff, because kids weren't watching Cracker no, at night. Of they? It was definitely a post-Watershed thing. Yeah. But to see him being a serious character was quite interesting. Um, and I think the thing I'll always remember him for was when he is in um, Blackadder, Christmas Carol. But he plays the ghost of Christmas, past, present and future, whatever. Oh, does he? Yes, so he takes Blackadder back through time, forward in time, all that sort of stuff, and he's absolutely hilarious in it. So if anyone's not seen that, Blackadder, Christmas he, Carol. He's Carol. also in, is he in another series? He's on series three of Blackadder, is he? Does um, he write the, yeah. the write the um, the dictionary? Yes, yes, you're right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Oh my God, that is a hilarious episode. Yeah. And they throw it into the, uh, into the fire. <laughs> yeah. 
Our American listeners aren't uh, Canadian listeners aren't familiar with Blackadder. Get on it. Yeah, absolutely. Not right season now. one though. Season one has its charms. Oh, but come on, season three is where it's at. I like the I like the season two as well. To be honest, I mean that's great. But season three, if you want to see, I mean, a lot of people only know Hugh Laurie as House or House. Yeah, if you want, so. yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Season three is is a masterpiece. Um, season four is good as well, but uh, I don't. Um, yeah. Anyway. Sidetrack there by Zakowski. <laughs> nope, didn't catch any of that. <laughs> well, I simply observed, sir, that I'm felicitous. Since during the course of the penultimate solar sojourn, I terminated my uninterrupted categorization of the vocabulary of our post Norman Tang. <laughs> oh, I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds damn saucy, you lucky thing. <laughs> I know some fairly liberal minded girls, but I've never penultimated any of them in that solar sojourn. If that might have been given any Norman tongue. <laughs> I believe, sir, that the doctor is trying to tell you that he is happy because he has finished his book. It has apparently taken him ten years. Yes, well, I'm a slow reader myself. <laughs> Zed is for Zeal, Nikki van der Zeel. Uh, now, she is was born in 1935 and she was a German actor based in the UK and known in this context for dubbing um, a number of roles across 10 different James Bond films. Um, so in Doctor No, she dubbed the voice of Ursula Andress and was basically all the other female voices in the film, apart from Lois Maxwell, Zena Marshall and Yvonne, Yvonne Shima and Michelle Mock. Um, and then in From Russia With Love, she did the voice of the hotel clerk in uh, Istanbul. In Goldfinger, she did the voice of Shirley Eaton and Nadjaregin, and she helped to coach Gert Frober with his English language um, uh, uh, dialogue, which then was dubbed. <laughs> uh, in Thunderball, she dubbed uh, Claudine O'Gare. Uh, in You Only Live Twice, she dubbed Me Hammer as Kissy Suzuki. In Honor Majesty's Secret Service, she did a number of different voices. Uh, it's not very clear which ones exactly. And then across the uh, the, Rog- uh, the Diamonds Are Forever, uh, Live and Let Die, Man with the Golden Gun and Moonraker, she did loads of different voices. Probably most notably in Moonraker, she was the uh, Drax's pilot, Corinne Clary. But uh, Nikki van der Zeele had a, quite an amazing life, really. She and her family uh, fled Nazi Germany in 1939 to begin their new life in North London. She was obviously only four at the time. Um, and, and from a young age, she was sort of very uh, interested in the arts. And I have to sort of give credit here to um, Matthew Fields' uh, obituary for Nikki van der Zyl because it's the most detailed obituary of them all out there. So most of this information comes from there. Um, but yeah, she she was a member of the local amateur dramatics society as a child. And then when she was 11, she was asked to dub the voice of a girl in a German movie into English. And so she then spent the day at Denham Studios and she recalled, by the end, I knew that I wanted to be an actress. She studied at something called Par Rada, which apparently is a preparatory academy for Rada. I hadn't heard of that before. And that was in the 1950s. Um, And then because she was unable to afford the fees to actually go to Rada, 
she took on work in the West End, taking on lots of different roles. And then she toured the UK in a show called Reluctant Heroes. Her voiceover um, work came through a family friend. She was actually family friends with Robert Rietti. So see our letter uh, episode R for that more detail on him. But he is one of England's most prolific dubbing artists. And he did the voice of Adolfo Celli in Thunderball, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that was one of his sort of biggest roles. Um, And then she basically found work with a company called Delane Lee, which if anyone works in post-production in in the UK will know the name. It's a very famous production house um, in London. And she voiced many different things, lots of international films into English for the English market. Um, So in 1962, um, Eon contacted Delane Lee and they needed a voice actor to revoice Ursula Andress uh, because her voice was considered, her Swiss German accent was not considered exotic enough. So for the uh, princely sum of £25, Nicky van der Zeel provided the voice of Honey Rider with a mid-Atlantic accent. 25 quid. Mm. She also revoiced Eunice Gason's Sylvia Trench. That's something we've talked about recently as well. And she did Strangways' Secretary as well. So that's like, I think that's even the first female voice in the film. I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm, it is. Um, yeah, because she does the radio, doesn't yeah. she, to the... Yeah. She really wanted to be on screen herself, but sadly, um, it's actually quite a sad uh, quote here from her 2013 autobiography. She wrote the book For Your Ears Only. It's not, I don't think it's available in the English language, but um, she said that while she was working on Dr. No, she asked Terence Young if there was going to be a part for her in From Russia with Love. And he said, No, I'm afraid you wouldn't stop the traffic, Nikki. However, a young man in the corner came up to me and said in a voice, I'd stop the traffic for you any day. And that voice belonged to Sean Connery. So, uh. what a gent. She, like I said, she worked with Gert Frober on uh, Goldfinger and she helped uh, him with the line, No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And he apparently delivered it. This is her quote. Gert delivered the line fairly dramatically at first, but I told him that it'd be much more effective if he said it in a throwaway manner, which he does in the film. Uh, so, yeah, she's responsible for one of the most iconic lines in Bond history. Probably the most iconic line in mm. Bond history. Yeah. Uh, quite amazing, really. Um, and then she was also... There's photos of her at Stoke Park for the golf scene. Apparently she was there helping Gert uh, do his lines. And then Sean Connery took the time to teach her the basics of golf too. So uh, what a gent. Uh, so on Thunderball, uh, she did the voice of Domino, as I mentioned. And then on You Only Live Twice uh, of Kissy Suzuki... Um, she also uh, apparently did some of Jane Seymour's lines in uh, Live and Let Die as well she had to go in to do some ADR for for Jane Seymour when she wasn't available so uh, there's that and then after Bond, quite interesting this she she retrained as a barrister and she later became the assistant to David Meller the MP making coffee well I don't know that was a a barista barrister joke there Uh, very good. <laughs> right, way over my head. Um, and then she was uh, in the eighties. She went to work as the with the political editor of TVS, uh, which was a franchise holder for ITV. And she was a Parliament me- media liaison. Mm. So quite an interesting change in career there. Yeah. Uh, but her credits. I mean, she's done over a hundred films. Um, some of the other ones to mention: Call Me Buona, One Million Years BC, Battle of Britain, Fiddler on the Roof, 
And talking about her art, she said, revoicing is both an art and artifice combined. It's a skillful deception which can repair defects and improve performances. It's a bit like fine tuning a car while still on the production line. Uh, but sadly, she never really had a great um, relationship with Bond uh, after her time. I think she felt that she wasn't really, never really received the recognition for her contribution to the different films. Um, she would often, when she was interviewed, be very vocal about this. Um, and once uh, she had been invited to a an event to celebrate 50 years um, uh, of Bond, and uh, sadly her invitation with, was withdrawn after they read some interviews with her. Wow. Um, and she was sent a letter which says there's been sensitivities involved with actors in the series who were dubbed. So they're sort of passing the blame, saying that the people in the films yeah. would feel offended that the voice actors were there. But, I mean, that seems bad, doesn't it? Mm. Um, um, yeah, they felt they might she might embarrass Shirley Eaton somehow, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. And sadly, her book for your is was for your ears only. I think it's is that what I said it was called. Yeah. Um, Roger Moore wrote a foreword for her uh, to be using the book, but uh, uh, sadly, it was pulled. The permission to put was pulled at the very last minute without an explanation. So she'd obviously rubbed someone up the wrong way at Eon, uh, which is very sad. Uh, but there was an exhibition in Berlin. Um, a few years ago, which celebrated her family and her life um, following her escape from the from the Nazis. Um, and um, Norman Wonstall, who worked on the first five Bond films, said it is to Nikki's credit that her performances have never been questioned. And her greatest reward is to witness the disbelief of those informed that Ursula Andress's voice is not her own. Um, so sadly, Nikki died, um, I think, uh in 2021 i think um she's the reason we did this podcast people like her absolutely 100 mm. percent. yeah absolutely shining a light on these sort of unsung heroes onto another unsung hero <laughs> and the, one of the reasons we did this podcast <laughs> the only reason we did this podcast <laughs> zed is for zorin max zorin Yes, now finally. it's. Uh, I've noticed it's not actually uh, accurate with the alphabet, is it? I know. Well, I changed it because it's from yeah. Ken Adam to Max Zorin. But, so but I, I had, had to. to I had to address it because people would kick off. I'm sure they wouldn't care. Ten years that cares. <laughs> so we've now gone from Ken Adam to Max Zorin and everything else in between. So here we are, Max Zorin. He, he's the villain of A View to a Kill. And his plot is to um, basically take over the world's microchip market, which sounds way more advanced than, you know, 1985 than it should be, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like yeah. a 90s plot. But yeah, so his plan is to trigger a double earthquake that will, inf- uh, that will flood San Francisco, Silicon Valley, which is home to um, most of the uh, microchip production globally um and his operation is called main strike um but uh he, he also we also have to sit through an hour of horse racing don't we um <laughs> it feels like yeah. it. <laughs> where he um he basically gets a him and dr carl mortner um he's a scientist that basically giving steroids to to the horses um using remote remote controlled microchips uh, 
So yeah, I mean, everyone gets a bit suspicious of the, suspicious of this. You know, his horses are absolutely smashing the races, aren't they? Um, and so yeah, that he goes. He's investigated by Bond. Um, and yeah, so we go through the whole charade of a view to a kill, and we get to Operation Main Strike, the actual finale. Um, Zorin, who was connected with the KGB, he he sort of severs all those ties, and uh, just starts committing massive crimes. The the machine gunning in the mine is just senseless violence, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then he betrays Mayday, played by Grace Jones, and um, she then turns at the last moment, doesn't she? Uh, yeah. She sacrifices herself in order to remove the detonator which means that the earthquake doesn't get triggered. Um, so Zorin tries to escape in his airship and um, Bond grabs onto it and uh, he ties it to the Golden Gate Bridge and then there's a fight on the Golden Gate Bridge between Bond and Zorin and uh, Zorin finally falls to his death. So in terms of the character, who plays the character? Well, who could have played the character? Ah, that's the interesting part. That's the interesting part. We know who plays him. It was offered originally to David Bowie. So so the rumour has it, isn't it? I don't know. How how true is it? Did you find out? Well, I mean, he said it was offered to him. Right. He did an interview with NME um, in the the mid-80s and said, yes, I was offered that after Sting. So, I mean... Another, he's offered to Sting first. Um, it's a weird pecking order, that, isn't it? Sting, then David Bowie. You'd have thought, yeah, you go to Bowie first. Yeah. Um, well, I guess Sting was big at the time, having been in June, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, he said, I think for an actor, it's probably an interesting thing to do. But I think that for somebody from rock, it's more of a clown performance. And I didn't want to spend five months watching my double fall off mountains. Fine, don't do it then. And he didn't. But uh, that's a shame. It's a good what if, isn't it? Yeah, and I feel like his look was imported into the movie for Zorin. I mean, it's, yeah. At the time in the 80s, for sure. Yeah. Um, The suits that he wears. The bleach blonde hair, yeah. yeah. Um, But Christopher Walken, he said he was in New York at the time and they sent him the script. He said it seemed like a good job. What? What? Uh, Hang on. What? You're not going to do the... You must be able to do a Christopher Walken. No, that is the most come, impossible impression. Come on, I'm giving it a go. Can you? <laughs> it's all about stopping at the wrong points, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, stop it's a bit, it. It's, it's got such... The pattern of him talking. The, the cadence so is... so uh, difficult, is isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the the word that you, you... Sort of trigger word to go into it is watch, isn't it? That's the one. <laughs> My father's watch. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, back to stop this. You're nonsense. not going to do it. But you're not going to do the impression. Okay. I'm not going to do the impression. Just imagine it in his voice. Okay. Okay. Um, he said they sent me the script. It seemed like a good job. Sent me the script. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I knew there were lots of good reasons to do it. How many times does an actor get to be in a Bond film? That would just be fun to do that. And so he took it, obviously, and. Um, while shooting, they spent Christmas in Switzerland, and Roger Moore had a home there. Um, 
So he invited Christopher Walken and other cast members to spend Christmas with him and his family. And uh, Walken said that uh, Roger Moore is a wonderful man. We were shooting over Christmas. He invited me to his home in Switzerland. It was James Bond and the villain hanging out together over Christmas. And uh, he also got a close friendship with Grace Jones as well. He said he was very fond of her. We spent a lot of time together. The shoot was five months and I got to know her very well. Um, And uh, no matter what we think about the film, you can definitely sense there's some sort of camaraderie on on screen. Yeah. 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 He also talked about... um, the, the his his sort of bond connections early on and uh he said when the first bonds came first bond films came out they were made an enormous impression on everybody i was in high school when from russia with love came out and walken said that he was a big fan of robert shaw and i said i admired right. him so much anyway as an actor in fact i was part of the theater company once that he was a star of um so, yeah, he, you know, maybe channeling some of that. He said, Max, or- Max Orin is a Bond villain. I was supposed to be some kind of mutant, some sort of an invention of scientists, a genetically altered villain. So I had strange hair, but I was a Bond villain. That's special. You're certainly on some sort of list. Um, John Glenn sang his praises. He said Christopher Walken was easy to work with. The biggest problem was finding him. He had a tendency to wander. <laughs> we had to get a junior assistant to keep his eye on him all the time so he knew where he was um <laughs> so yeah uh christopher walken was born ronald walken and uh he was born in new york in 1943 and his mum worked for stagecraft society so from an early age he was exposed to photo shoots and auditions um and at the age of 10, he enrolled into a dance class along with his brothers, Ken and Glenn. The, the boys and their mother would, uh, they would take part and they'd be extras. They'd be in, in different productions. Um, and Christopher Walken became to uh, get very good at tap dancing. So in his first, he got a first major role in an off-Broadway production, which starred Chris, Christopher Plummer. And... Um, and then throughout the 1950s, he he was on various different TV shows. Um, so yeah, he got that he got the acting bug, and um, he was he just started propelling through his career. It was at age 22 that he became known as Christopher. He was working opposite uh, an actor called Monique Van Voren, who kept calling him Christopher. Uh, and it was a name that he liked, and it stuck. And so from 1965 onwards, he was known as Christopher Walken. Um, And he made his feature film debut in the Anderson Tapes in 1971. Yes, there's a link. There is a link. Harry Saltzman. No. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Yeah, and I uh, watched a clip. There's a clip where Sean Connery goes into a shop and uh, Walken's playing the shop assistant and they have some dialogue together. It's it's surreal That's seeing right. them together. It right. really is. Um, so from, from then on, you know, he, um, he stars in many different roles, varied roles, which he's done throughout his career. But uh, he was in uh, Annie Hall. Um. He was also in The Deer Hunter, 
and yeah. he um, he got a Best Supporting Actor Oscar at the 1978 Academy Awards, which meant by the time we get to 1985, he's the first villain to have won an Oscar before playing uh, being in a Bond film. Um, who was the second? Christoph Waltz. No, Javier Bardem. Ah, oh. yeah. So he won one for No Country for Old Men in 2007, then went to start in Skyfall in 2012. Um, so outside of Bond, he... So in 1992, he played a millionaire industrialist, Max Shrek. Yes. In Batman Returns. What a great role. A character that must be loosely also based on Max Zorin. <laughs> Max Sorin didn't fall to his death and he just sort of fell, hit himself and went <laughs> hiding for a few years. Okay, we'll take that. Yeah. Um, then he was uh, was in True Romance, um, but probably one of his most famous roles and definitely one of my earliest memories of watching a film that I shouldn't have been watching when I was a kid is uh, Pulp Fiction. And yes. that scene where he gives the gold watch is is an incredible scene. Yeah. Um absolutely brilliant. I also remember him in 2001 when he was in Fatboy Slim music video for Weapon of Choice. Yes. Yes, yeah. Um get getting to use his uh his dancing skills uh, yeah. in that. And it won 6 MTV awards. And wow. it's, it's it's quite often in top 100 videos of all time. I definitely inspired that Daniel Craig Belvedere advert as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was in Catch Me If You Can as Frank Abagnale Sr. Yeah. Um, which got him an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Um, he was in Wedding Crashers. Yeah. Um, but he returned to Broadway in 2010 in um, Martin McDonough's play A Behanding in Spokane. And uh, he won a Tony for his for, for this for best performance wow. by a leading actor, and then he went to went on to work with him again for the film Seven Psychopaths. If you remember that, I do. Yeah, I remember yeah. it well. Yeah, um, yeah. So moving forward to 2016, and he voiced King Louis, and he, he he did that wonderful rendition of "I Want to Be Like You." This is uh, yes, yeah, talk singing kind of yeah. uh, performance. Um, and then most recently, he has been in uh, BBC One comedy the outlaws which was written by Stephen merchant um uh, where he gets to destroy a banksy spoiler alert by the right. way <laughs> in uh, season one last episode he um he defaces a banksy and is a genuine banksy as well wow um so basically it was just it was made purely for for this show and then he got to destroy it which you know, oh, considering how much that would be worth yeah is uh an, an incredible thing to to get to do um and has also he's been in uh severance which is an apple tv plus show um yeah. which he was nominated good, for awards for that as well mm. um and then in 2023 he will play emperor shaddam for the fourth in june part two i mean it, it's a, we've had a few legends in this episode haven't we yeah Ma- zao um, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah Chris, christopher walken uh it's it's 
it's a great career and I'm glad he did. I'm kind of glad David Bowie did turn it down, to be honest, because I, th- I like yeah. him as Max Zorin. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically, uh, his involvement is in Bond is just such a small dot in his career, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you know, we look at some of the some of the older villains, and it's just like this is the most famous thing they ever yeah, did, and that's it. Their career For just Mac- tails off. But yeah, Christopher Walken, though, this is just literally a, a, a footnote on his career, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, and and still still working to this day. I think he's seventy eight, seventy nine. So uh, yeah, yeah, long may he live. So there we go. Is that it? That's it. Are we done? <laughs> Wow. Wow. I didn't think we'd ever reach this moment, but no. uh, what a what an achievement. What an achievement. Um, what else is there to say? Well, I guess if people want to get hold of the show, they can email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. I don't know how long I'll pay for that domain. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it'll be valid at least until the end of 2023. Uh, and if people want to find us on social media, Brendan. At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. And again, uh, I don't know how long those will be going for, but we probably will keep the flame alive in some way, shape or form on there. And I think we'll come back for one more episode. What do you think? Tie up all the loose ends. I mean, there's a lot of loose ends. Like What? <laughs> It just feels like there is. It's, it's never ending, isn't it? Well, it's just every time you sort of think you know everything there is to know, there's just something else that comes along, yeah. isn't there? Um, but yeah, we, but we, like... we should come back and probably do some form of ranking. We'll have a we'll look back on all twenty seven films. I think um, in some way, shape, or form, we'll answer all the questions that you've sent in to us via email. Um, we'll say all our thank yous and um, all that sort have of stuff. Have a cry. And, um, have a little cry, yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll have a little sing song as well. Who knows? But but for now, it's time to go back to A is for Adam, Ken Adam. Yes, yes. If you really indeed. want to put yourself through that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you, every single person who's listened to these episodes. These letter episodes are probably our favourites to do, but uh, they're not the most listened to episodes. Mm. So uh, if you've got to this point and you've listened to every episode, thank you for being along uh, on this journey with us. Um, Thank you, Brendan, for uh, for humouring me. Oh, and, and thank you, thank you for for giving me something to do for two years. <laughs> and now we must get back on with our lives uh, and get back to our wives. Um, so, on that note, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week, probably. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.